Oh, did I say subtle again? Subtle. Subtle. If any of that makes any sense. I'm not making any sense at all tonight. I think my medicine's kicking in. All right, all you movie junkies. It is time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 114 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Ark of Trajan episode of the SLS Cast because the Ark of Trajan was erected in Benevento, Italy in the year 114. That's right, folks. We're going... All historic Italy on you now. And with that wonderful little bit of knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And joining us from the lot at Sony Pictures would be... Tim, who is really in need of a Roto-Rooter right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, uh, we, We will have to be favored with the stories of how everything works out with your wonderful... I believe the quote was, fecal in the bathtub emergency. Um... Oh yeah, oh, I, I can I can go into detail about it if you want. <laughs> oh no no no! With, with with the amount of content we have to get to today, we will we will tease this wonderful. We can get the whole story and drag it all out next week. I know because you, you don't know is it just in the bathtub or is it somewhere? Did else? it explode? I mean, I have seen those sewage backup where the pipes literally reverse and then they like your commode explodes and it's all like over the bottom of your house. But uh, let's hope it wasn't that bad. Um, yeah, so uh, we're all here, we're alive, but we have an ass ton of content to get to, and we should go ahead and get started now. So, without further ado, here we go, folks. It is the... Wait, I almost said the movies. Shit, we're not quite there. It's the news! <laughs> yes, voice cracking and everything. I'll get you, Greg Brady. All right, poor chops, applesauce. That's right. Well, I guess he sure showed me. All right, so uh, news. Okay, real quick on the news front from the files of the email. Uh, Twitter apparently uh, still emails us, so we do know that the uh, email address of the show at the uh, at slscast.com that's the show all one word at slscast.com does work uh let's see we've got four new podcast followers to tell you about via twitter we've got let's chat podcast which is at let's chat podcast uh it turns out it's a uh long con long form conversational podcast it's interesting yes let's chat with revel and friends they, they are now following us. Uh, we also have uh, Dale Blindheim, uh, which is at Madzub, or Madzub. And uh, yeah, so that's fun. And then, of course, our good friend R2 is now officially following us. And he is at 
W-A-N-H-T-P-Y underscore R2. Do you see how they do that? Because, see, they're not here to please you. And so the Twitter shit is really going to be aggravating. But uh, we love them, of course. We're glad R2 finally has his own Twitter handle, uh, which means you can totally, you know, bother him now directly. Uh, Last but not least, we have Skip to the End, which is at S-T-T-E-P. Podcast. That's right, because I don't know how to read. Basically, at S-T-T-E podcast. They are a podcast consisting of Mark, Ben, and Adam. And they also do movie news and reviews and features. So don't, don't listen. Don't do it. I'm just kidding. No, they were very kind enough to follow us. So definitely give them a shout and let us know how we suck compared to them. That that would be helpful as well. So that is all of our wonderful Uh, podcast information that we have via the email and our new Twitter followers. So thank you very much for following us at the SLS cast on Twitter. Uh, My first official news piece for you comes to us from uh, blogs.indywire.com. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the playlist courtesy of Kevin Jaggernauth. (sighs) The ever intrepid Nicholas Cage praises Hayden Christensen's edgy, dark, and soulful performance in the Star Wars prequels. This is not a joke. I sincerely thought this was like an onion piece or something. There are few things everybody likes about the Star Wars prequels, but the acting is not one of them. Though in defense of the actors, among them usually reliable folks like Natalie Portman, Samuel L. Jackson, and Ewan McGregor, they were working with some terrible scripts, and with George Lucas, who isn't exactly known for eliciting the most colorful performances out of his cast. Hayden Christensen probably got some of the worst criticism, some of it deserved, though it wasn't entirely his fault either. But he does have one defender in his corner. Nicolas Cage. Yes, again, not... A joke. Outdoing press for his latest movie of the week, Outcast, Cage singled out his co-star Christensen's work in the Star Wars prequels while sporting the greatest hair ever. Quote, And so I watched George's movies and the work Hayden did with George, and I was very impressed with Hayden's sort of edgy, dangerous, dark, and still soulful performance. I thought it was superb, and so I really connected with him. End quote. Um, I'm thinking that during this press piece, uh, Cage said this, and I just visualized Christensen walking out from, like, nowhere and giving Cage 20 bucks. Uh, you know, and Cage is like, all right, thanks, man, now go away. I I picture that happening. Um, what do you think, Tim? Do you, do you think that Hayden Christensen delivered the, quote, edgy, dangerous, dark, and still soulful performance that, uh, Cage uh, I wouldn't say edgy or soulful, but I would definitely say dark. And you know, it wasn't to me. It wasn't that bad, honestly. The only line, I'm sorry, the only line I truly felt I believed coming out of him for all of them was when he screams, "I hate you!" After being, you know, virtually dismembered. Um, Lying on the bank of the lava river. That's like the only. And of course, it's only that movie where you can actually say that sentence. It was when he screamed (laughs) out, I hate you, while he was laying dismembered on the bank of the lava river. That's right. It could be worse. I mean, I like Nicolas Cage, but who would be 
worse than Nicolas Cage to have said that. Like, who would have, like, made people go, like, oh, my God, like, really freak out? Martin Scorsese. Really? I think that if Martin Scorsese had said that exact same quote, people would be like, what the fuck? They would literally be waiting for the punchline. Seriously. With Cage, you can semi-believe it because this is a guy who has definitely been on the low side of the acting spectrum, the highest pinnacle of the acting spectrum, and is now currently working out the low end of, you know, trying to see if he can get it lower uh, for himself. Uh, And so you can kind of see that this is a guy who does have a semblance of knowing what he's talking about, but it's hard to take him seriously. I think that someone even worse would be someone that is truly taken seriously and, you know, like... His his word is law, and I think Scorsese would be someone like that. All right, actually, I have some breaking news. It just popped up, so it's something, Matt, that you don't know I'm going to mention, but it would be foolish of me not to mention it, I think. This is from Marvel.com, and again, I haven't read through this yet, but the, uh, the subject line here is what caught my attention. Uh, again, Marvel.com. Sony Pictures Entertainment brings Marvel Studios into the amazing world of Spider-Man. That's right. Uh, And it says this, Marvel's Kevin Feige, or Feige, or Feige, or Feige, to produce next installment of the Spider-Man franchise with Amy Pascal. And this was just posted literally six minutes ago uh, from when I'm reading it right now. Under the deal, the new Spider-Man will first appear in a Marvel film from Marvel's Cinematic Universe. Sony Pictures will thereafter release the next installment of its $4 billion Spider-Man franchise on July 28, 2017, in a film that will be co-produced by Kevin Feige and his expert team of Marvel and Amy Pascal, who oversaw the franchise launch for the studio 13 years ago. Together, they will collaborate on a new creative direction for their web slinger. Sony Pictures will continue to finance, distribute, own and have final creative control of the Spider-Man films. Marvel and Sony are also exploring opportunities to integrate characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe into future Spider-Man films. Their new relationship follows a decade of speculation among friends about whether Spider-Man, who has always been an integral and important part of the larger Marvel Universe in the comic books, could become part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on the big screen. Spider-Man has more than 50 years of history in Marvel's world, and with this deal, fans will be able to experience Spider-Man taking his rightful place among other superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and there's more, quite a bit more to this uh, article here, so you guys can check it out. Check it out. Uh, again, it's from Marvel.com. Matt, initial comments or thoughts? Uh, this is very, very exciting news, um, but it seems like... I think it seems, from what I could understand of what you read, it seems like it's going the wrong way um, for the people who want Spider-Man in the Marvel movies. Because it sounds to me if I that Kevin Feige was lent out to Sony for the next Spider-Man movie. Is that right? Yeah, it just says that Sony Pictures will thereafter release the next installment of the movie in 2017 in a film that will be co-produced by Kevin Feige. Feige. Sony will continue to finance, distribute, own, and have final creative control over the films. What this sounds like to me is that this is the baby step that will hopefully allow Spider-Man to appear in Marvel movies. Um, 
what what it's it's uh, and this is this is great. This is an excellent first tentative like ceasefire, if you will. You know, just trying to to work together to see if you can to see if it truly could work out. So I am all for this move. Uh, I think it can do nothing but make the next Spider-Man movie better, in my opinion, um, which will be good because I think that if it truly does become better, then it'll be better for Sony. Uh, as a company overall, but it will also foster a sense of growth that says, look, we can truly work together, which then could say, okay, so Sony will go, cool, well then we'll let Spider, we'll let Spidey appear in an Avengers movie. Um, so I think that that's where this is going, but currently I, I would still say just, let you know, cautious optimism, it's looking good. This is actually Marvel backing down to Sony uh, at least in my opinion, that's what it seems like, because Sony has been all up for striking a deal, but the word has it that Sony, or excuse me, that Marvel was not wanting to give up the rights, or they, they wanted complete control and complete freedom, and I'm sure it was also a money thing as well. Marvel didn't want to give up uh, a large chunk of change, because you know they're going to lose it since it's like a co-ownership and a co-production. Yeah, this is this is interesting. I'm looking forward to it. I do wonder though if they're going to get rid of Garfield or keep uh, keep the current cast. I assume they'll probably keep the current cast involved at this point, but I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I would not consider this such a one sided victory. Say uh, that uh, again, just because this is a. I think this is really and truly just a testing the waters kind of thing. I think that Marvel. Um, is going to reap production benefits simply by tying their name to this Sony thing. And um, having the Marvel creative team kind of infused to this, I think, will then revitalize Spider-Man properly, which is all good for Sony, especially since they're retaining creative control. But if you notice, this is just in regards to Spider-Man, um, I think the the problem was is Marvel wanted Spider-Man for Avengers, and Sony was like, "Well, no, we need to share if we're going to share characters." And Marvel says, "No," and then of course Sony says, "Well, sorry, we own Spider-Man." So I, yeah, I'm I really think this is a lot more equal uh, uh, than I would say. I would say at this point, it's still kind of a fifty-fifty thing because. Of the reasons I said before, but at any rate, I'm I'm excited. I am excited as you are, sir. So good eye, good catch. <laughs> Yay, literacy. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, then my last piece of news here for you, uh, coming to us from Movies.com. This was an exclusive for them via Jason Garcia. John Wick directors are already working on a sequel. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Movies.com is happy to report that if you were completely blown away by the action and thrills in John Wick, the directors say they're in the works on another one. Uh, yeah, the actual deal here, uh, in 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 inventing terms like uh, gun fu and car fu, which I thought was pretty clever, uh, <clears throat> they they're saying that the directors are not going into any story specifics. Or even if Reeves would return, but uh, they are quoted as saying, "If we could quote, if we could work with Keanu Reeves for ten movies, you'd have a really cool career." End quote. Um, but it boils down to this: 
This is from Chad Staheleski. I'm sorry, Stahelski. Pardon me. Quote, we have ideas for days, and without blinking twice, we know we can outdo the action from the original. It's the matter of story and how much you like the character. That's always the most important. If there's great action, but you have a character that no one likes and doesn't have charisma, you're not going to watch it. Look at any great action star, whether it's Harrison Ford or Liam Neeson or Robert Downey Jr. Pick a name. You love the guy first. Good action. Bad action. You just love them in action. So we want to make sure we have a story and a character that everybody loves, and then we'll dress it with action that we promise will be awesome. End quote. Now, David Litch uh, added, quote, You gotta go on a journey with the guy and have to like the guy. End quote. Uh, What do you think, Tim? Do you think that they are on the right track with where they're wanting to take this if they can actually produce it and bring Keanu back and all that good stuff? You know, I'm not sure, to be honest. I wish... I'm kind of... Okay, well, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I mean, I, this John, to me, John Wick is a really cool one-off movie. That's why I felt with Shoot 'em Up. It's like, I love the movie Shoot 'em Up. God, I hope they don't make a sequel to it, because it just won't be the same. And I think this is definitely... John Wick is one of those movies where you have that experience when you're watching it, because you're blown away, because there are not that many... really cool stylized action movies like that that come out nowadays. So that's what makes that movie unique. And I would just be worried about that uniqueness, that feeling you got from watching the first one might not be there for the sequel. So I think it's one of those things that if they pull it off good, you know, it could be pretty awesome. Right on then, right on. All right, well, that's the end of the news for me, sir. What else do you have? Okay, so I'm going to blow through most of these. First one regarding G.I. Joe 3. Uh, it turns out, according to ScreenCrush.com here, that they might incorporate some characters from the ever-so-popular animated show, Mask, or M-A-S-K. That's right, that was actually something I did not watch. And for those of you like me who do not know what Mask stands for... It stands for Mobile Armored Strike Command. That's right. And both of the first G.I. Joe movies did pretty okay at the box office. But a lot of the fans were leaning one way or the other. Like, they couldn't really, like, get all the fans involved with those movies. So they're really hoping to kind of sort of reinvent the film with the third one. Keep, uh, you know, all the same people in it. But they want to make it. They want to make it more of a must-see movie. Think Transformers. Yes, another Hasbro here is wanting to make another Transformers, but with GI Joe. So expect a ton of action, a ton of special effects, and a complete lack of story and character emotional depth. Uh, I hope not, but uh, they've been striking out with board game movies lately. I mean. Transformers, and Ouija. Come on now. Next up, Zoolander 2 to shoot in Rome this spring. Yes, as in spring 2015. This is from comingsoon.net, and it says that Derek Zoolander is bringing Blue Steel on a European fling, according to Italian site Bad Taste, who report that the mayor of Rome, Ignazio Marino, has announced that the sequel to Zoolander will shoot for 12 weeks in and around the famed Cinecita Studios this spring. 
The mayor met with star Ben Stiller, who is set to reprise his role as the dim-witted male supermodel, with Justin Thoreau co-writing and directing. And it says Will Ferrell and Owen Wilson, as well as Christine Taylor and Penelope Cruz, uh, are set to be co-stars. Third piece of news real quick. Mel Brooks, another one from ScreenCrush.com here. Mel Brooks is developing a sequel to Spaceballs. Finally, it says. This one is written by Britt Hayes. Now that Star Wars has been revived and in, with an incredibly promising new trilogy, isn't it about time for Spaceballs to return? In an interview with Adam Carolla on the Take a Knee podcast, Brooks revealed that a Spaceball sequel is in the early stages of development, and he obviously would love to get some of the original cast back to reprise their roles in the film. And it's tentatively entitled Spaceballs The Search for More Money. Yes, Brooks' confirmation matches up with a parade interview in 2014 when he revealed that original Spaceballs writer Thomas Meehan had some great ideas for a sequel. The issue now is wrangling some of the original actors back. You have John Candy, who already passed away, Rick Moranis, who has retired. But they do say that Bill Pullen might be likely to return, because given Pullman's career history, this seems like just the kind of thing he might be game for. And then finally, my last bit of news here comes to us from SlashFilm.com. And yes, it does happen to pertain to the Fifty Shades of Grey movie. Uh, I know we're going to be watching this uh, when it comes out on the eve of Valentine's Day. I know Matt has already got his... Actually, I'm flying to Houston, so Matt and I can go see this together. The midnight showing... Actually, no, the 7 p.m. showing on Thursday night, the eve the eve before, uh, before Valentine's Day. However, I do think, Matt, you will be... A little upset after you leave this film because you know, I mean, as as we while we were planning it, you know, we knew we were gonna go eat at Bennigan's beforehand, uh, maybe get a dessert over at Applebee's, go over to the local uh, Hooters and uh, enjoy, you know, a couple margaritas and you know, and then we knew that okay, well, we got this buzz going. We know Fifty Shades of Grey is only gonna be an hour and fifty minutes long. There's gonna be lots of TNA in it. You're gonna be seeing nipples flying around everywhere and whatever else we know that, you know, Matt might be into. Buzz is still going by the time credits are rolling, we're out of there and we're heading over to Arby's. Well, unfortunately, Matt, yes, the movie is still an hour and fifty minutes long, but it's not gonna include all the nipples and butt cheeks that you might have been looking forward to. Because it turns out the sex scenes themselves, or itself, I think is there's like a few of them, oh will only take up approximately 20 minutes of screen time in this one hour and 50 minute movie. That's right. And it says here, the 20 minute tally comes from Mr. Skin, of course, according to the site which tracks nudity in movies that makes Fifty Shades of Grey the raunchiest film in a decade, with more sex in it than the 100 raunchiest films of 2014 combined. That's a lot of sex, even if it's not as much as the 50-50 sex slash non-sex split that Taylor Johnson previously guessed. For what it's worth, the 20-minute figure has since been disputed by Universal, though the studio won't confirm exactly how much of the movie consists of sex, te- of sex scenes. 
That's right. Whether it's 20 minutes or 50 minutes, though, Taylor Johnson, the guy who's playing Grey, wants to stress that the naughty bits of Fifty Shades are not gratuitous, but integral to the narrative. Quote, I don't want it to be graphically explicit, end quote, she told Daily Mail. Quote, it's the buildup and the titulation of touch and sensuality. So I don't think it goes into the realm of porn, end all quotes. Actually, that's the girl who plays Amanda Steele. Yes, end all quotes. So possibility of there being only 20 minutes of sex scene in a 100 minute long movie. Although it does say that Universal is uh, disputing that time. Who do you believe, Matt? Do you believe Universal or do you believe Mr. Skin? Considering the Sunday Times, that's what Mr. Skin does. I'm gonna go with Mr. Skin. (laughs) That's the their whole (laughs) website is dedicated to that. So I'm gonna imagine that I know what they're talking about. Are you excited about Zoolander? I'm just excited about our date. Apparently, I was. I mean, you spoiled the surprise. I know it's gonna be great. I was kept wondering why you know everybody was telling me no, you don't have to go to work on Thursday. Oh, awesome. Okay, well that's great. I didn't know. But now I know why, so... Yay! I'm sorry, honey. You'll be getting your edible vest in the mail. Uh, Although I must question the uh, wisdom of margaritas at Hooters. But but hey, it's your treat, so I'm I'm fine with it. I was trying to think of the one, like, feminine yet manly drink that one could get (laughs) at a Hooters. I mean... Nice. All right, well... That's going to go ahead and conclude the news then. Um, as we said last week, due to the amount of movies that we are going to be covering, there is no bonus segment this week. Next week, we are bringing the bonus segment back, but we're kind of doing them in a reverse order. Um, we're going to do the movie, all the movies we have to do this week, and then next week after the news, we're going to do all the movies that we have to do for next week. Uh, and then our bonus segment will be our Oscar predictions, so that this way all of the movies will have been covered, and then we can properly do our picks so without further ado here we go for real this time it's the movies all right so we have Whiplash, The Tale of Princess Kagaya, Finding Vivian Mare, Leviathan, Last Days in Vietnam, and Song of the Sea, which will be only my take uh, on it this week. Tim will wrap it up uh, next week with his take. So where do we want to go first, sir? I don't know. Do you want to start with Song of the Sea or do you want to end with it? Um, I guess... I guess I'll let, let's end with it on mine, and then we'll start with it on yours, so we can kind of like you know reverse bookend it, and it's kind of like a sounds know, yummy, like a to be continued, and then we pick right back to up. be continued. So yeah, all right. So then there we go. So song of the sea, my take on it's going to be last, and then first up next week will be Tim's take on it. And so we've got the other five movies left. Where do you want to start, sir? How about finding Vivian Mare? Finding Vivian Mare, and I would just like to preface this. Um, entire series of reviews with how fucking depressing were you trying to get me to kill myself all you movies all of them what the shit Um, alright so Finding Vivian Mare it's a uh, documentary about the photographer Vivian Mare and but it was her choice 
to not be known. She was a nanny who had a um, an OCD-like obsession. Okay, not just in regular, you know, need for but like literally obsessive compulsive obsession with privacy, um, which kind of makes the whole fucking movie ironic because here is this prolific photographer, uh, and to some degree, um, filmmaker isn't quite the the word I would use, but for lack of a better term, we'll go with that. Um, who's Negatives were actually bought at auction for about $340 by this guy. Uh, he then goes and discovers all these things. It goes to discovers these amazing photos and starts tracking down the owner. Uh, and then, you know, we uncover the story of Vivian Mare, who was this, who was someone. And the whole, again, the irony of the movie is she was intensely private. And yet, even though she had this gift, selfish or not, she didn't want to share it with anybody. Um... And art for the masses becomes art for interpretation once you release it to the public. You can't ever get it back again. Um, people will see what they want to see and make of it what they want to make of it. And that's of performance art, film, poetry, uh, books, music. Any kind of art form, once you've given it away, regardless of monetary gain or not, once it's out there... It's whatever the people make of it. And I think that was the point, was that this was something, I think that through this whole thing, as they keep trying to find out more and more about her and trying to understand this woman who had this just amazing ability. And it, and it, it's, it, it is, because as much as I feel for this lady who did not want us to see this for what for her own whatever reasons, um, God, it's it's amazing that we get to see it. It's It's... I mean, you are literally sitting there juxtaposed on your own. It's like you've literally, this whole movie is uh, the angel on the one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder with the angel going, you know, she wouldn't be happy with this. And the angel and the devil going, you know, fuck that angel. You know, watch this shit. It's amazing. Look at it. Just look how much you can learn. Look at the appreciation. And I just felt terrible. I am so conflicted with this movie. Um... It, it doesn't... That's not to say it's not a good movie. Uh, it, it's just that it's really... It's both amazing and sad at the same time. Because you look at... And you look at this lady and her life. And people could look at it and say, My God, you wasted it. Look at what you could have been and what you could have done. If you had let this stuff out during your lifetime. Imagine where photography would be imagine where art would be if you had let us see it but at the same time look at where we are now with an appreciation and where it can go from here it's just it, it's a great it's a great documentary um when especially when referring to her side but um the irony just never ceases to amaze me so as much as i enjoyed it as much as the art itself is amazing um, I still just am saddened by the story of this woman. Um, that being said, great movie, four and a half stars. What do you got, Tim? So, yeah, I was kind of conflicted with, you know, my, like, I guess my personal opinions with what should have actually been done with these photographs. I, I just don't understand, like, why this guy blew it up. It's like, why? what was wrong with just posting them and letting them, like, maybe 
get followed and seen and, you know, if people really liked them on their own and then she became, like, a big name on her own, then that would have been okay. But, like, this guy's, like, going out of his way to make it something that's, oh, you have to see, you have, I don't know what I'm saying. I do, but then I don't and then I can't say it. And also, I gotta say, I don't, I was kind of, I felt a little weird being made to, for sympathizing for a woman. Like, it was weird. Like, so you're, you're watching this movie and you're amazed by her her photography and everybody loves her pictures and every picture they show you in the movie you're just blown away by the next one and has this music and then like you're into this woman like oh man why what's going on with her man she's you know this is amazing stuff why did she do this and then it gets to the part of the movie when you find out that uh she beats children and she's not really I'm not maybe not beat children, but I mean she would like torment some of the kids that she was watching, and she's hit a couple of them, and she wasn't really the greatest person, and so the movie gets really awkward for about I don't know ten minutes maybe. The swooping music kicks in, and the movie becomes more light and fluffy. It's kind of like well, she had this past. We're just gonna place it over here, so maybe you won't think about it too much. And apparently, a lot of people didn't think too much in it but it just kind of like it i don't think that the filmmaker really knew how they wanted to present that material and it just kind of weirded me out however with saying that again the movie is uh is is fascinating because of the pictures themselves and the idea that this lady was a nanny and just her personality in general you know like how she actually managed to take the time and just took all these great pictures I mean, they're fantastic photos. But I have to give this movie four stars out of five. None of that made sense, I don't think. But I'll make it. I'll <laughs> well, I mean, it was, it was all right. I, <laughs> I, it, 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 again, just goes to show you how conflicting the movie is. I mean, it's, it really is. Um, I even forgot to touch on that whole dark side of her there. <laughs> but was it kind of weird? I mean, did you kind of feel the same way? It, well, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think they were trying to make light of it, but I think they were definitely trying to minimize it. Because, but I think it also goes to the mystique of this woman. And I think that that's the problem with discovering someone um, posthumously. There, there's no way to know. You're only ever going to get the one side of that. So, well, And I also wasn't saying that they were like making light of it, but it was just like, we're going to kind of sweep this under the rug now that we've told you about it. Sure. Yeah. So, anyways, all right, so where do you want to go next, sir? How about uh, Last Days in Vietnam? Okay, Last Days in Vietnam. That's the Japanese Studio Ghibli one, right? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. All right, Last Days in Vietnam's 2014 American documentary film. This one is written, produced, directed by Rory Kennedy, and this is going over the literal final weeks of the Vietnam War. Um, and it's kind of telling the story of the North Vietnamese army as it's closing in on Saigon. And you've got this kind of duality happening where uh, the South Vietnamese people are desperately trying to get out. You've got American soldiers and diplomats um, who desperately want to save as many people as they can. But they have a direct order to evacuate U.S. citizens only. And what do you do? Do you save as many people as you can and risk punishment, censure, jail, uh, you know, 
do you help people and they might not get the help they need anyway and put them in worse positions later on? Um, or do you just abandon them to their fate? And so it tells a very interesting narrative. And I think something that I really enjoyed about this movie... I, I, this movie... Um, I'm going to go ahead and just let you in here. It does come in at four stars. I really like the movie. But the reason why it doesn't do any better than four stars is because aside from telling this tale... Not tale, I'm sorry. Aside from kind of giving you the moral ambiguity of the day and kind of giving you a window into the politics and the first war ever nationally broadcast, truly nationally broadcast. Um, the film itself doesn't really do anything else. So, uh, like Virunga, as striking as, it, as striking as the tale was, it also had great cinematography. It had, you know, very gorgeous detail and, and things of that nature. Here... I felt that everything else was very bland. The story is gripping. It's I'm not trying to take away from the story, but the whole thing it just is felt like story. a PBS documentary. Exactly. Thank you. It feels like it does. It feels like a PBS documentary, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. As a matter of fact, where I was disappointed in Virunga uh, for telling kind of this you know makeshift tale and inputting footage of reenactment style stuff that didn't need to be there, this is kind of going back to a documentary's roots and letting the story tell itself. But I think that. Um, I think there's a happy balance to be had in this. And I think films like Cutie and the Boxer, uh, Hero Dreams of Sushi, these are the kinds of, of documentaries that tell a really, really interesting story that is, a, that is wonderful in the documentary genre, but has a good visual flair that doesn't detract from the story. Here we have a great story, but nothing else. And... So, so the story itself is worth watching, and I encourage you to watch it because the end it does tells a great story, and I'm not going to spoil anything for you. But that's about all it does. So four stars based on the strength of the story alone. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got? Funny thing, this is actually a movie by PBS, so that's probably why it feels like a <laughs> a PBS documentary. And actually, that is a part of my uh, one of my notes right here. Actually, what I wrote here it's. Uh, it's actually not like any other Vietnam documentary because it touches on a subject that you don't hear that much about, and that is the final days of the Vietnam War. And it's amazing because I'm, story-wise, it's it's amazing. It's ex, it's excited as exciting as the war itself because this was America retreating as the enemy, their enemy, uh, was you know closing in. And so a lot of stuff had to go on. You have all these conflicted views of 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 the you know like the soldiers' view of what what you know what should happen, what should go on, and then the United States government's view of what's gonna you know what needs to happen. Like how are we gonna get the troops out? Because soldiers want to stay and help. Government doesn't want that to happen. They wanted everybody to get out. So it was exciting. Um, and another comment, uh, negative comment about it. Or another somewhat, you know, I, I mean, again, these are issues that really didn't make that much, it didn't taint the movie at all. But uh, I was, I'm a, I have a minor in history, and one of the subjects I studied was the Vietnam War. And I couldn't help but to feel that this movie was a little bit one-sided. But I did keep in mind that 
this movie is from the point of view of 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 our side of the United States side. And so, in a way, I can kind of understand how it's one-sided. But then again, the movie does... They could have included some other details that didn't feel like, like, say, mainly from the people that they were being interviewed. And not just, like, oh, the soldiers, but, like, some of the top officials. Kissinger, for example. And I had no idea Kissinger was even alive still. And so there was just kind of, like, these, these uh, this uh, one-sided opposing view towards the... Not just the war, but about the uh, North Vietnamese... Uh, and it's kind of like, well, you know, this is kind of a subject that you would rather hear, you know, both sides of the story. But other than that, I mean, the movie is gripping, it's suspenseful, and it's just a really good story to tell. It's very entertaining, and despite the politics, and despite the, having it, the, that having the PBS feel to it, and the PBS documentary d- documentary feel to it, I thought the movie was, I mean, I thought it was actually really good. I enjoyed it more so than Virunga and Finding Vivian Mare. So I will have to give this one 4.25 out of 5. And as you can see, again, gripping story, but for me, very sad. But, you know. Yes. <laughs> it's just like I wanted to kill myself after <laughs> watching all these movies, I swear to God. So what bummer of a fucking tale do we want to go to now? <laughs> Where do you want to go, Have sir? you started opening up the veins in your arms that have... Oh God! Do you want to just do you want to just start dragging you know along the along the main artery? Because remember, folks, in the movies they just show a quick little slice across the wrist. No, no, no! We're dragging the razor blade all the way down the forearm, and to do that properly, I think we should probably go to Leviathan next. What do you think? Sounds good. All right, let's do it then. Leviathan, 2014 Russian drama. And I'm not even going to attempt these names because I, even once they're not in Cyrillic, I can't uh, do them justice. Um, this is the story of a very, of a, of a very simple guy that you really want to like that continually gets screwed over by the name of Kolya. Um... He okay. It's he's a he's a married guy. He's got some nice property, so the mayor wants to take his property. He then goes and gets his buddy, who's a lawyer and an old war buddy of his, to come all the way out from Moscow to help him. And so the guy helps him, but in terms of helping him, has an affair with his wife. So his buddy Dmitri ends up having sex with his wife, Lilla. Um, so he's trading one problem for another. Meanwhile, he's a really good mechanic, and he's got all these different kinds of people that are, I guess, friendly. Like, you, you get the sense that they're on very amicable terms with one another, because he's a good worker and friendly and uh, and everything else. But they really only like him as far as they can use him. And, uh, and, and people just are, in general, just really shitty to this guy. Um, no matter where this guy turns, every time he catches a break, he's like the, he's like the bad luck Brian, for those of you who are familiar with this meme, with the internet meme, he's like the bad, it's like Rush, they just might as well call this instead of Leviathan, they should have just called it bad luck Kolya. Um, and this goes all the way up until, all the way through the end of his life. Um... I don't want to give away anything more than I've given away. I'm just wanting to set up kind of the stage so that you really get an idea of just how desperately sad it is. Now, again, 
It's excellently acted. It's got some really, really interesting cinematography to it as well. Um, the director definitely had a very clear vision for this film, and I talk about this occasionally, but this is, I felt, one of those times when the director and the cinematographer were really on point together. Um, and it brings out really good performances. The acting, I think, um, I don't know was not anything spectacular not terrible by any such imagination but um, was nothing spectacular but the characters were still inviting uh, and interesting or ruthless depending on how you want to look at it nonetheless and I think that's more the director really being able to pull those characters out than the actors necessarily doing great acting on their own um, so at the end of the day I still want to kill myself because it's a desperately sad story, but it's a good movie. Uh, four stars. So, what do you got, Tim? Yeah, for me, this is a four-star movie as well. Uh, the movie, what I really liked about it, and Matt is absolutely right about the cinematography and the direction. I mean, it was definitely a clear vision uh, that we saw, uh, the director's vision that we saw on the screen. Um, it's a very interesting story. Uh, how, and I liked it up until until a point, uh, because what really drove the movie for me was the great social, not social, but kind of like the satire, well-crafted social satire, everything with the government, and every time you see who, I guess you could call the bad guy without going too much into detail of what this bad guy is, uh, let's say an official of some sort. And behind them, every time he's doing something menacing and, and he is in his office, look at the portrait is that's right behind him. It's Putin. So there's a great satire that's going on throughout this movie pertaining to that. But other than all that stuff, the great the pacing was really great up until a point. The acting was was is fantastic, and the look of the movie is really great. But the movie hits a point when I just didn't enjoy it as much. The turn that it takes close to the end, I didn't enjoy it as much as the rest of the movie. I'll just leave it at that, I guess. Uh, so I give this one four stars. Outstanding, sir. Outstanding. Okay, so um, shall we continue our uh, depths of sadness and go with the tale of Princess Kagaya? Sounds good. Alrighty. So here we go, folks. The Tale of Princess Kagaya. Um, it's actually from 2013, but uh, because of the way it was release schedule, we didn't get it till 2014, so that's why we're doing it for the uh, Oscars this year. Um, is a very, very faithful adaptation of a folk tale called The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter. Um... And I, I don't want to get too off task here, but I think that if you know anything about bamboo in and of itself, the story that is told, both from the folktale and in this very, very faithful adaptation, kind of represents an interesting life cycle of bamboo. Bamboo, uh, there's different varieties and species, but on the whole, bamboo doesn't do anything 
for several years. You just you literally water it for like five years nonstop, and nothing happens. And then one day, about five six years later, you're watering that little shoot, and then like a day later, it's three feet tall, and a day later, it's six feet tall. Um, it's insane. And yet the life cycle of bamboo is such that it attracts a fungus that eventually kills it. It both helps it spread, but eventually kills it. So you can only take advantage of bamboo for so long before you will ultimately lose it. The tale of the bamboo cutter um, tells this story of a, of a farmer who finds a princess in a stalk of bamboo. And... Just like bamboo, it grows quickly, and she goes through all this wonderful misadventure and everything. Now, as it relates to the tale of Princess Kagaya, again, we have a farmer who finds uh, this little sprite, for, for lack of a better term, inside some bamboo, and they believe her to be a princess. Um... And so he takes her home to his wife. They call her Princess. Uh, he continues to find, like, gold and stuff like that. Uh, she grows, like, overnight, virtually, and then becomes this beautiful, this epically beautiful uh, woman that people just, you know, are, begin to fawn over her beauty. So even though she's happy where she is with the love that she's getting, her parents and their misguided uh, notions of trying to do well by her promote her as a princess and take her to the major city where, uh, you know, they're spending all this lavish gold and building her up and she ends up being sued, uh, being uh, pursued more or less by these uh, various suitors. And ultimately, how these suitors' relationships work with her, even up into the emperor... And what ultimately becomes of her because of these interactions and these relations and how they make her feel show start to show where she truly came from. And how just like the fungus that helps that that ultimately kills the bamboo, there is a storyline that is similar to that fungus that no matter what you can do, you can only take advantage of the bamboo for so long. Even when you're even when your heart and your intentions are pure before it's gone and the story kind of mimics that and it's terribly desperately sad um for me though while it's a wonderful um while, while it's wonderful artwork and and definitely a, a terribly sad story it's still worth watching the problem for me is certain tales of hopelessness and despair are okay um, in and of themselves. And again, the folklore that it's based on is also, uh, it mirrors it very closely, so it, there's no happy ending in the folktale either. But how this movie eventually comes to its resolution and the way that you might find it to be ambiguous in how the sadness affects all of those involved, for me, really seemed like kind of a 
pointless play on emotions in it. And you're you're so kind of tired. I mean, it's literally like, oh my god. It, the, the problem that Tim was having with Leviathan, I was having with this by the end. It's like, come on, how much worse are we going to get here? What What else can possibly happen? And while the resolution of the story is solid and worth watching, I just, I felt like they were intentionally trying to tear-jerk uh, instead of letting a truly poignant story be the poignant story that it could have been on its own. Uh, so for this one, for me, three and a half stars. I like the pointless tear-jerking that happens. I'm just a sentimental guy, Matt. You're just angry. Arr. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I enjoyed this movie a bit. It's it, this is an interesting film. It's a Studio Ghibli film, uh, and it's it's cool. Uh, okay, so I, I really like the minimalistic approach that uh, that they took with the animation here. Uh, I don't mean minimalistic as in like there's no animation, but it's not like the fluid animation that you might have uh, that you might be used to in your normal animated movies or even other uh, previous Studio Ghibli. Films. Uh, this is definitely more minimalistic, but everything you see in this movie is, is is a beautiful picture, you know, or a beautiful painting. I mean, there is definitely flow, and it's definitely an animated movie. It's just you'll just notice that it's a little more, uh, you know, not as fluid. But that doesn't stop the movie, because and what's great about this minimalistic approach is that this allows the viewer to focus more on the uh, on the beautiful story and on the characters and exactly what's going on. You're not distracted by all this fluff on the screen, but you're able to focus and get attached with this uh, with the story itself because the movie does get emotional and believe it or not this is a 2 hour and 20 minute movie. That's right. This is a 2 hour and 20 minute kids film or it's well, I don't know if it's really a kids film. But it's a two-hour, 20-minute animated film. And you really need to pay attention. I think that is important for you to really get in touch with the characters and really go on this this kind of this emotional train what wreck of a journey, you know, with Matt, apparently. Uh, but also what helps is that the voice cast is really good as well, or the dubbing is really good as well, because I actually had to see it with uh, voice dubs. And believe it or not, this is one of the better voice dubs I've 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 listened, I've heard, or I've seen uh, with one of these films. It's really good, talented cast, and if you get stuck seeing it dubbed, just to let you know, it's not bad at all. And what's also great is the score. You have a beautiful score, and the sound effects are so lush. Like whenever there's a scene of her running through tall grass or through a field. What you see, you know, you you know, it's not like oh, you know, she's running through all this grass, and you can actually see the grass itself, you know, to where it's like oh, you know, you can identify it. But you have this great sound. They really went all out for the sound effects because it's not like you're watching one of those really goofy toddler shows on PBS, like whenever an uh, animated character walks outside and you hear. That's me walking on grass. No, this is actually like they went out with a boom and a sound kit and actually went through grass. And so you had this great lush sound, this very cinematic sound that just worked amazing. And again, you know, you didn't have to have that all in your face, you know, crazy animation because you have all this other wonderful stuff to help you get more involved. And the narrative depth 
also proved to be highly affected, I thought. Uh, more so than any animation film that you will probably see uh, within the past couple years. You know, there's more narrative depth to it. I mean, even with its lengthy runtime, the film never does feel stale or repetitious, which is very important with any movie that's two hours and 20-some-odd minutes long. The depth of the film produces real-life humor, you know, stuff that we can all identify with, really funny stuff, really funny nuanced stuff. There are these beautiful, uplifting moments in sadness, you know, so that all that keeps this movie from going stale. And... It's great, you know, where that's kind of like where Matt said that he uh, was really starting to push that knife deeper into his arm and yank it a little bit, was because of the swelling music. And I gotta say, if you are a sucker for swelling music and really sad music in movies, uh, you are in for a treat. Uh, I did enjoy this one a lot more. This is one I enjoyed as the movie progressed, so I give it 4.5 stars. Alrighty then. So it looks like we are down to Whiplash. So, yeah. Alright, this is a 2014 American drama film, and I think Tim's probably favorite film of 2014, for sure. Uh, And this is about, it's directed, uh, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, and, um, based on his experiences in the Princeton High School studio band. Um, it stars Miles Teller uh, as a jazz drummer and J.K. Simmons as his teacher. Now, I've got to say that on a technical level, this movie is flawless. Okay, In terms of characters... This, and I definitely hope Tim took some tranquilizers here, because I think that this was definitely a bad day to try and limit the amount of time that we have for a show. In terms of the characters, they're the fucking pits. And I literally was like, what was the fucking point of this entire goddamn movie? Um, They are two complete people who are the exact same character. Both vying for control of the exact same thing, which is the music. And Andrew Neiman, who is played by Miles Teller, is determined at all costs to be the next greatest thing in jazz, specifically drumming. Uh, Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons is determined to have the best band ever uh, and also be the best in his world of jazz. The thing is, is that because they are the same fucking character and they both know that they're the exact same character, they both just try to... they, They spend the whole fucking movie with one character trying to outdo the same character over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. I'm going to get smacked around and humiliated in class. What's my response? Behave like him and smack around the people in my life so that I can do the same thing. Oh, I'm going to get 
I'm going to fuck somebody else over because I don't want to get fucked over and be the best. So I'm going to get to be the best, but then I'm going to get fucked over anyway. Oh, I'm going to do absolutely everything and make this big, dramatic, desperate thing only to have a big, dramatic, desperate thing happen to me in return. So now, because of the big dramatic thing that's happened to me, that gets happened to me, now I've got to go and do something big and dramatic anyway. Everything is the fucking same. It's the same goddamn thing. It's like the same person talking to themselves in a mirror just 35 years apart. It's terrible. It's just pointless. To It is literally pointless to watch. And the story, and see, people, and then the ending of this movie, I highly encourage you to go see the ending. I'm going to do everything I can to not blatantly spoil the ending. But even at the end of the movie, what people might, might, in my opinion, completely misinterpret as the, the vestiges of an equal, at least, acknowledgement of respect... On a, on a level playing field, it's not. It's just the next... It's just the next step in the evolution of, well, now I've got to answer in the exact same way that I was just answered. It's, it, it's just never gonna fucking stop. It's literally completely pointless. It's just watching self-destruction for the sake of self-destruction. There's not... There's no story for these characters to actually do. And yet people misinterpret this as the trope of a student just desperately trying to please someone and the overbearing teacher. They're the same fucking thing. And it's not underscored brilliance that they're the same fucking thing. It's just pointless to fucking watch. Outside of that, the way that this film was directed was awesome. The soundtrack is bar none the best I've heard in the last couple of years that I can think of. Um, the casting was flawless. The way that the that the people interpreted the writing and the way that uh, Chazelle developed his story, as much as I hated it and didn't think that these characters were worth the time, was still very well done. And on a technical level, this movie is amazing. But in terms of the story and the characters themselves, this movie sucks. So, I come down on this two stars. I do not like this movie but not for technical reasons. And I do realize that I am in the faithful 5%. I understand that this will probably go down in history as the day that Tim had a fucking stroke and the ultimate, I'm the only one who hated it, that will probably replace the piano. So, Tim, if you're still alive and, you know, needing to take some heart pressure medicine, I encourage you to do so and begin. On Rotten Tomatoes, this film has a score of 95%. <laughs> and it's certified I fresh. Said, I just said I just said that I am in the faithful 5%. I just said that. Well, I, he is right. Um, though Matt can have whatever paltry opinion he wants, but I got I will tell you this folks, this is pro this is definitely one of the best films I've seen this year. Um, I think this movie is going to win a few Academy Awards, one for being Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons, and I really hope this movie gets editing, or uh, even Best Original Screenplay, because this movie takes took a ton of editing, because it's about drums. You know, the thing about drums is that there's always a beat. You know, the one musician that is always playing, who is always playing in a band at a concert, is the drummer, Usually. 
if there is a drum kit needed, I guess. So this movie, to keep up with the pace and to keep this movie as what it says on, here on the movie poster, exhilarating, astounding, electrifying, you have to give everybody in the audience this rush. And so that requires the quick edits, one, two, three, four, five, you know, all this stuff to go along with the beats and to go uh, basically just for the movie itself to actually compete with the music and to compete with the drums. And it achieves that. And this movie is not only a good drama, but it's a goddamn entertaining fucking movie. Very entertaining. This movie also has a killer soundtrack to it, like what Matt was saying. And what's great is that it's all just music. There's no let it go lyrics to, uh, you know, to it or anything. And this is a movie solely about, or solely about the music. I really thought the relationship between the teacher and the student was absolutely fantastic. Uh, again, I thought I think J.K. Simmons deserves the Academy Award, and I do think he will get it. And I really enjoyed the fact, or the idea, maybe, or I enjoyed the the aspect that the movie is about two characters trying to achieve a near impossible goal. They're not competing. Or anything like that. It's they're both trying to achieve that goal. And they pull it off wonder just the relationship that that creates is outstanding to watch. It's funny, you know, again from the movie poster, exhilarating, astounding, and electrifying. And it's just really good, I think, writing and all around filmmaking in general. That's you know, just technically and uh, you know, the talent in front of the camera. However, the one complaint I do have is one particular aspect of the movie, because this movie builds up. Like, every good song, there's a... Or every inter super entertaining, exciting song, the tempo builds, the pacing builds, and this is what this movie does. It builds up to this astounding climax. And one of the elements, story elements, you know, uh, that they use in the movie is something that, to me, felt like it was a blatant cop-out. Like, okay, well, instead of, like, continuing this awesome writing, we're gonna make this one thing to happen to really kick this ending into overdrive. And to me, you know, again, that, to me, didn't work all that well. But, hell, man, the ending of this movie is fantastic. The movie itself is fantastic, again. Uh, I'll quit kissing its ass i give this one 4.75 out of five. Oh wow see i was thinking it was going to be five stars for sure i am impressed that it is not five stars <laughs> <sighs> so all right well then that is going to take care of the bulk of the movies i'm going to go ahead and do part one of song of the sea uh, it's the Irish animated fantasy film. It's by Cartoon Saloon, the same people who brought uh, Secret of the Kells, uh, for those who may or may not know about that movie. That one, I should believe, is still uh, available on Netflix. Um, this one is actually about a Celtic myth of the Selkie. Uh, the Selkie is a being that is uh, part that is human but can turn into a seal. Now, uh, while maybe not as lavish in the idea of myth and mythos as like mermaids or what have you, they're still really cool creatures. This is uh, concerning the tale of two children, Ben and Cersei. Oh God, I can't even think of the name, how, how they said it right. Um, they're siblings who have lost their mother. Um, Dad is very despondent, 
uh, because of having lost the mom in childbirth uh, for the youngest one, uh, Cersei. Um, and so brother blames sister for being born. Uh, dad's despondent. And grandma takes over. Um, in the process of taking over, though, uh, ben is separated from the dog. They de- he decides he wants to go back to his dog. Uh, little sister, who doesn't talk, decides to tag along. And they end up going through an adventure where they find out that the young child is actually a selkie, just like someone else in the movie. I'm sure you can probably put this together. Um, and they now have to go on an adventure to get... Uh, young Cersei's voice and in doing so have the adventure of their life but of course Ben is afraid of uh, what has to happen in order for his sister to get his voice think seal, water you know, all this kind of stuff Um, and thus the movie has its draw and its plot Uh, the animation is really cool. Um, I actually kind of felt that this one uh, felt like more of a Japanese anime than an, than a European style of animation. That being said, it's still it's still very pretty to look at. Um, I thought that the score was really good. The only this this movie suffers greatly for me from being ridiculously tropey. And again, every movie. I I'm sorry. I thought that the I thought Whiplash was just sad based on this whole character thing. So again, sticking with the theme of everything being sad. Guess what? Song of the Sea. It's sad. Oh, shock and awe and horror. Um, you know, the humanity. It's just a sad movie, uh, but it is so incredibly tropey that it it literally hurts. Um, <laughs> Because not only is it sad, there, the even the redeeming things about uh, Leviathan or Tale of the Princess Kagaya, um, where yes, they're sad and incredibly sad, had lots of redeeming qualities to be had in them. The same redeeming qualities are not found due to the just ridiculous amount of tropes that are found in this movie. That being said, it's still a very solid effort. Um... And I'm giving it three stars. I like this movie, uh, but it does suffer from quite a few problems. So that's part one. Part two, uh, Tim's take on Song of the Sea, of course, will be first up next week for the movies. And that does bring us to the end of the movies overall for this week. Next week's movies are, uh, again, part one, or I'm sorry, part two for Song of the Sea of Tim. And then we've got Selma, Foxcatcher, Tangerines, Salt of the Earth, Timbuktu, and Wild Tales. So it's going to be a chock-full-of-movies thing, but then we'll be back to normal again. Um, so that's going to be that. That is the end of everything, and I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. 
Alright folks, well the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are of course the SLS Cast and you can find us at SLSCast.com You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345 You can climb aboard the information superhighway and see if you can track down tim on twitter and of course you can subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to dennis quaid i get to say this i can't hit a ball more than 200 yards i have no butt you need a butt if you're going to hit a golf ball talk to you guys next week (laughs) and we're clear oh christ Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>